Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. American fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seeing as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Smokestack Lightning. Do women have unique power to stop wars? Is there something related to the gender I don't know. I wonder about that. We'll find out about that. Is this idea naive or is it realistic? It's usually men who start wars and who fight in them. Is there something about strong femininity or feminism that has power, unique power, to challenge and change the power of machismo, having to look manly and instead bring peace? Women's International League for Peace and Freedom is the longest-lasting international women's peace organization. It's celebrating its 100th anniversary in many places around the U.S. and at The Hague in Holland from April 22nd to April 29th, 2015. Our guest today is Robin Lloyd, a peace activist and filmmaker who has served on the WILPF, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, board on and off since the inspiring experience of producing a documentary on the peace train to Beijing and the Fourth World Conference on Women in 1995. First, tell us, uh, thanks for being with us, and tell us about what that peace train was about, please. Well, that was an extremely um, exciting and galvanizing experience for all of us in Wilf to go from Helsinki, Finland, all the way to China for, what was it, I think it was 10 days, with uh, women from all different countries and then stopping in a number of uh, cities in the former Soviet Union and um, in Central Europe that had just been uh, several years out of change of government and the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, so we um, we would stop and, and meet with people all along the way and and being privileged to be the filmmaker of the experience that uh, 40 hours of footage, I was able to live with wow. it for the next year and really... <laughs> you got to really know it. Sort of in, in, take it into uh, my... Uh, relive it and, and cut it down into one hour. So wow. um, we're going to be showing that here at the Commission on the Status of Women, which is dedicated to... Uh, looking at uh, what came out of Beijing, which is the Beijing Platform for Action, and has it been implemented? If not, why? And if so, where? Hmm. Um, and so there are just women from everywhere talking about that subject here, here, here this week in New York. 
Well, I want to go back, oh, a hundred years. How did the WILP, as you say, that's easier to say than Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. How, how did that get started in 1915 in the middle of that incredibly horrible Great War, which we now know was the First World War? How did WILP get started? Well, that's a wonderful question, and I have been uh, researching that for the last year or so because my grandmother was one of the people who uh, became galvanized uh, to to cross the Atlantic to join other women to uh, offer uh, ideas of mediation and to go to foreign capitals to say, hey, guys, uh, how about considering these ideas? How about stopping... Uh, how about having an armistice? How about having mediation? But so I was so interested to um, to try to follow the trajectory of her life back then in 1914 when Gav- Gavrilo Princep first fired oh, yes. fired the gun to the nine months later where my grandmother Lola took the boat to Europe to try to stop the war because she she was not an anti-war activist. Uh, in 1914, I mean, very few people in the U.S. were even aware that there were storm clouds in, right. in Europe. Right. And yet, um, in her case, living in Chicago, it was meeting with a Hungarian activist, a Hungarian uh, feminist named Rosika Schwimmer, who was touring the country saying that we, that the United States should, and President Wilson should offer mediation because if not, the United States would somehow get drawn into the war. And of course, she was ultimately right. But she was such a a uh, charismatic speaker that in Chicago, my my grandmother met her. They went together to talk to Jane Adams, and of course, Jane Adams was perhaps the most prominent woman in America, uh, offering. A, a kind of feminist analysis of of society <laughs> uh, through Hull House and her work uh, in social work uh, in Hull House. So from there, um, they went to Washington D.C. and formed the Women's Peace Party. Now there was there was um, division in the ranks of the former suffragettes or suff- suffrage uh, activists because some did not want to. Uh, speak out against war because they knew that would perhaps offend the men in Congress from whom they wanted to get, uh, you know, they wanted to get the vote. So uh, that that was very controversial amongst women in 1914 and 15 as to whether to really be active to try to stop the war. But there were... but it turned out there were 47 women from the United States that took a boat at a dangerous time when, you know, the Germans had submarines that were oh, yeah. um, uh, shooting down the boats. Lusitania. The Lusitania was, yeah. was hit just uh, a week or so after yeah. the Wilf uh, conference happened My goodness. In April, on April 28, uh, 1915. So they, they did that. They met with the women and... That became the founding moment of of Wilf. We didn't call ourselves Wilf at that time. It was um, I forget the, the title we gave ourselves for the next four years of the war. But in 1919, uh, we took on that uh, formal name, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, because 
one of the commitments made in 1915 was that the women would reunite at the end of the war, hopefully to be in the same town and and able to uh, be heard or make their voices heard to the people negotiating the peace settlement. Well, that didn't happen because the uh, the the conference the the Versailles Conference took place in France, and France would not give any visas to German women to to come to take part in the Wilf Conference, so the conference had to take place in Zurich. But Wilf was one of the first organizations to critique the uh, the Versailles Treaty. That was, in a sense, what our, our founding <laughs> um, uh, action back in 1919. And if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is Robin Lloyd of Wilf, uh, women... Uh, International League for Peace and Freedom on their 100th anniversary, what what it started out as and, and what they're up to now. And uh, 1915, it would have been a perfect time. And it is useful talking about what could have been. It really is because we can, hopefully must, learn from history. Wilson was dedicated to uh, people in their own countries creating their own future. And unfortunately... Uh, by participating in the war itself and the disastrous events of the Versailles Treaty in 1919, that was not to be. But there was an opportunity to to make an armistice at least and and to prevent the Second World War. If there had been a decent peace after the First World War, there would not have been a Second World War. That's absolutely known for sure. And it, it's tough to be uh, ahead of your time and to be prescient, but certainly Wilf was. You were about to say, Robin. Yes, well, you, you know, I mean, it, if they had stopped to look at some of the causes of World War One and Germany's feeling of being, in a sense, surrounded and not having its own source of energy or of... Uh, of fuel, mm-hmm. because one of the uh, factors, and this came out in the play that we have produced called Talking with Our Grandmothers. Yes. Um, let me just tell you a bit about that. Oh, and, please do, yes. <laughs> which is that um, I, um, a, a friend of mine, it turns out her grandmother graduated from Smith College in exactly the same year as my grandmother, 1897. My grandmother went on to her, you know, be involved in trying to stop World War One. Her grandmother was stationed in Turkey, um, uh, which was a nation that was uh, um, wooed by different sides. Yes, uh, and um, had lots of resources that everyone wanted, and was standing on top of the crumbling Ottoman Empire. Right. And so, my friends story about her grand her grandmother as contrasted to my grandmother is very interesting and o- opens up a whole uh, side of World War One that most people don't uh, are not aware of which was that uh, that Germany had uh, negotiated a Berlin to Baghdad railroad that would cut a, uh, all the way through to Turkey and then on to uh, Baghdad and that this was going to be their develop, they would develop their source of oil mm-hmm. 
through that railroad, and that Russia was very upset with that, oh, yes. and of course, England and France also. So that, um, well, as it worked out, uh, uh, Turkey uh, took the side of Germany, mm-hmm. and England and France declared war on Turkey, but the United States never did. We, um, we sort of maintained a foothold there so that when it came time to divide the spoils after World War I, we were in a favorable position to um, negotiate a share of the oil. And, you know, what happened in the Middle East as a result of the uh, uh, World War One is still with us today. Absolutely. You know, the Sykes-Picot Treaty where Germany, uh. where uh, France and England sort of drew a line in the sand. Yes, literally. Yes. Jordan and everything. Those, those decisions, uh, you could say that the ISIS people are saying, well, you made, you, you colonial powers made decisions back there um, during the, the so-called Great War that we had no say in. And right. why should we, why should we observe the borders that you uh, laid down on us? And it's interesting, just a few weeks ago, there was a, an ISIS video where they had a bulldozer and it went right through the Sykes-Pico line. So World War One never ended. It's yes. still, yes. It's, we're paying such a high price to this very day, a hundred years later. So this performance piece that you did, what, what's the title of that? And, and so it's, a, it's talking with our grandmothers. In fact, we have a, we have a um, website that, um, devoted to it, uh, World War One Women's Peace Movement, wow. which uh, describes the, the the piece as well as some background on Rosica Schwimmer and um, the women that were uh, in uh, in the Hague at at in 1915, and we keep wanting to add more material, but uh, it's the first time I've really been in charge of a website it's it's a uh, it's a responsibility and, yeah. uh, <laughs> i haven't a clue how one would do that not one of my skills i have some skills that ain't one of them for sure uh-huh. <laughs> so i and and that uh that performance piece is is available at what was the uh website again yes uh ww1 women's peace movement well, I'll have to check that out. And uh, or talking with our grandmothers it's, it's, it's part of it. If you Google either one or both, and um, I'm not so we videotaped last night's performance, and we want to use it to promote Wilf and uh, the 100th anniversary, which sure. is actually in in April, April right. 28th in right. The Hague. I mean, you know what was happening. A hundred yes. years ago, on April twenty eighth, yes, the do. women were gathering, and a hundred and four miles away was one of the most uh, describe it horrible, horrible. Uh, battles. It was in Ypres, 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 I think it's called Ypres. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> which, I had to which, check. of course, it had battles uh, here and there, and backwards and forwards. But on that date was the first time that Germany really succeeded in using uh, chlorine gas mm-hmm, mm-hmm, effectively. Mm-hmm. They had tried it out, and of course the other side had tried it out too, but they, uh, you know, they had the advantage of slightly higher land, the wind was blowing properly, oh, and you know, thousands of people were dying just um, 
just trying to breathe four miles away when the women met yes and the sort of the the burden of 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 the realization of this war so close to them when they were conferring and having to confer in a, confer in a huge hall with no microphones or simultaneous translators i mean it uh. must have been an extraordinarily intense situation and the moderator for the whole thing was jane adams and apparently she did an incredible job in sort of uh, <laughs> moving the resolutions forward and listening to people from all uh, right. different countries um, that were at war, whose fathers and brothers were yeah. fighting each other at that time. Mm. So this was really, it, it's a, an event that really should be um, remembered yes. and, and held up as um, as an example of the kind of uh, the reason why women, peace, and security, which has become a um, a uh, resolution passed by the Security Council in the year 2000, uh, which incorporates some of the ideas from way back uh, at the mm. Wolf, that women, peace, and security needs to be um, implemented. Women at the peace table is is really our our mantra. Mantra, uh-huh. what's the mantra. word? Yeah, yeah. Uh, right now, that only five percent of the signatories on on peace settlements that are overseen by the United Nations are women, and that this is hmm. not good. <laughs> you know, I laugh, but it's it's horrible. And that that Battle of Ypres, you know, this the the uh, the gas that was used. I mean, the First World War. I, I think people, people, most people don't really know a lot about it. But it's as I said before, it's the 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 context for it, the struggles. Many of them are still going on today. People are still dying as a result of that. And to have that that knowledge and that commitment by the women who went to the conference uh, on April twenty eighth, nineteen fifteen. You're right. A lot more people. Should know about that. How many uh, women participated in that? Do you know? About? There were um, there were one thousand two hundred, oh. and they came from twelve countries. Many of them were Dutch. They were it was in their country, so they uh-huh. they they turned out en masse. Um, but uh, there was um, uh, German, uh, British. Though the some of the British delegates were kept from arriving. I think there was just one woman from France. There was an Strangely, there was a one woman from Armenia, and again, that was a uh, country and a group of people that, right at that time, yes. were being massacred by the Turks. by the Turks yes. in April of 1915. Mm-hmm. So, all of these very horrific events were sort of hanging over the heads of the women hmm. uh, as they met there. Unbelievable, and. and uh, just, just to tell you, one of the sidelines of the of the play is that I, because I was able to read my grandmother's papers in mm. the Schwimmer Lloyd collection, which is at the New York Public Library. Okay. So I was able to sort of follow day by day what happened while they were there, and mm. they waited around to go to plan their trips to the different world capitals to talk to the leaders, and. Uh, in her in her diary, she says, "Well, we went out to see the um, the tulips." <laughs> so I ask her, 
uh, I, I'm speaking to the bust of my grandmother, and I asked yeah. her, well, how could you go see the tulips when people are dying so close and you have the burden of all of this violence around you? And she says, she says, well, you know that uh, in, in outside of Boston, the women textile workers said, we want, uh, uh, we want uh, bread and roses, work and and roses too. Right. Well, we in we in the Hague are saying we want peace and tulips too. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we tried to kind of uh, tell the story in a uh, in a creative way of what it was like to be there. Wow. Quite a juxtaposition. You, uh, I can imagine, you know, really feeling what that was like to to know that this incredible bloodshed, mindless bloodshed, was going on, mm-hmm. and these beautiful tulips everywhere. Yeah, there, there's so much to talk about here and to follow up on. I, I read a, a wonderful book by Adam Hochschild. I don't know if you've read it called yes. to, to, Oh, good to end all wars. There were some amazing women in Great Britain at the time. Alice Wielden paid a very high price in terms of going to jail. There was Sylvia Pankhurst, Charlotte Despard, and Emily Hobhouse. Uh, those were uh, among the women that uh, were written about there. They they paid a high price in terms of public scorn at least in terms of public scorn, if not actual jail time, mm-hmm. I believe they're remembered differently today. And, and uh, they're, they're remembered uh, in a very positive light. Do you have any information mm-hmm. about that? Uh, well, I don't really know. Uh, I did read the book, but I, I, I didn't really follow up on how they're remembered today. But, I mean, for example, Jane Addams, yes. uh, when she came back, she continued to speak, but as soon as as um, the U.S. entered the war, the public opinion changed oh, against uh, yes. against her and against uh, the peace efforts that she had been involved in. Right. In fact, she was um, she was severely uh, maligned for having said that in Europe. She heard that the soldiers were often given um, given something to <clears throat> given something to drink, given alcohol before going out on oh, the battlefield. Yes. yes. To that's a fact. Um, relieve their fears, right? And o- to help them overcome the uh, the the transgression of killing yeah. yes. somebody. <laughs> yes. And she talked about that um, as she was uh, on a speaking tour, and that that turned against her. The fact that she seemed to be um, putting down the soldiers, and this was even before we entered the war, so it wasn't that she was criticizing American soldiers. And so there was um, that kind of uh, um, attitude developed, and as we entered the war, it became more and more difficult to be um, a peace activist or to have um, take a position of conscientious objection. And that was another interesting thing we did last night at the at the event here uh, to a sort of prequel to celebrating the 100th in The Hague mm-hmm. in April was that we invited the groups that were born out of the same cataclysm as we were, uh, not only Wilf, but the uh, Fellowship of Reconciliation. Mm. Some of your listeners may know about that organization. That's 100 years old last mm. year and mm-hmm. this year. Mm. Um, that's a group of more of um, clergy people and religiously focused people who, at that time, were um, were concerned uh, 
you know, just about the violence, but also about the individuals that were being uh, vilified, forced to uh, to uh, enlist, and didn't you know wanted yeah, to take no a position choice. of conscientious objection. Also, War Resisters League. Oh, really? Although mm. it came together formally in the twenties, it got its start uh, giving uh, advice to um, young men who were uh, hmm. were uh, did not want to fight. And the American Civil Liberties Union and the American Friends Service Committee all got their start okay. back then, as well as a number of other groups that haven't lasted to this day. But sure. those. Those four groups uh, and WILF are um, are still with us and still doing good work. And so we wanted to have a sort of sisterly time together last night at our uh, at our celebration. And it was very nice that several of them were able to be with us. And it's amazing how so much of where we are today in 2015 is very much related to the events of a hundred years ago. It's mm-hmm. it's absolutely still going on. So there was the hundredth anniversary of of Wilf on March eleventh. What what was that like? It must have been uh, rather invigorating. Well, it was. We had the raging grannies to start with. <laughs> Love that and, name. Uh, they're always full of pep. But they had created a, a special song for the one hundredth. Uh, we had our play talking with our grandmothers, and then we had Madeline Reese, who is our secretary general at the. Um, for Wilf, that's what she's called, <laughs> um, executive director maybe in other books, but she's a excellent spokesperson for Wilf, and she came to us from the United Nations where she worked in Bosnia oh. and was part of a uh, group of um, women and police women who discovered that the peacekeepers in Bosnia were were transporting women across borders to brothels that they were involved yeah. in human trafficking. Oh my. And she blew Oof. the whistle and um that uh became a film called the the whistleblower which I don't some might have seen it's a it's a fictionalized version of uh the discovery that the peacekeepers were involved in this and uh and Madeline Reese's uh, role is played by uh, oh, the British actress. I just had her name on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, it was it's, it's a wonderful performance, and I think it's available on Netflix. Oh, terrific! Um, so, so um, Madeline Reese has been very active in trying to implement the what we call Security Council Resolution One Three Two Five because women that. need to be. Uh, be more involved in the activities to prevent war. Yes, women need to be protected during war. Men are men are willing to concede on that one, but women have to participate in the resolution of war and be at the peace table when uh, there is a settlement. So she has been working with the Syrian women, and I was just hearing her today talking about the situation in the Ukraine and trying to oh, wow. trying to. Uh, bring women together. I mean, the groups already exist there, but they, they're not able to get traction uh, internationally. Uh, I mean, there are women who are working on both sides to try to stop the violence. Uh, and we just need to hear those voices we so do. much more. And I'm really thrilled at what, um, what Madeline Reese is doing 
and that Security Council or Security Council Resolution thirteen twenty five that would uh, require women participation in peace agreements. Is that it, or, or what? Um, yes, it 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 does. It says that if the UN is overseeing the um, the the peace settlement, that women have to be at the peace table. Now, what ha- what happens is that that's not honored, uh, yeah, and that. For example, Madeleine Rees got to Geneva with some of the Syrian women during the time of peace talks a year, more than a year ago, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they were shut out from being able to be at the peace table in that instance. And uh, despite the fact that it was overseen by the United Nations. So, I, you know, I mean, countries can say, or both sides can say, well, we don't want... It's just the men with the guns that matter yeah. at a peace settlement. I don't like that. I mean, That's there's, not a good there's thing. a way of looking at it that's saying, well, of course, because they can say we're going to leave and go back to shooting people, so sure. uh, we we are the only ones that really matter. Mm. Whereas in terms of really crafting a settlement that is genuinely headed towards a nonviolent cooperative society, you would need to have the women who have been upholding the um, the community yes. while war has taken place. Can you can you imagine living in Aleppo right now? Aleppo, no. uh, Syria, Syria, yeah. and which has been you know was a historic site uh, uh, for antiquities, and you know it's not just ISIS that's purposely no. uh, knocking down statues, but both sides in this war are bombing things um, well, randomly, and wonderful sites are being destroyed. But it's the women who are trying to hold together whatever community is left in these places. And I can imagine in Gaza, places like that, women just trying to hold it together. And throughout history, women have had this unique power to end all wars. There's some kind of power that women have to be able to stand up to men that other men can't do. There's uh, the story of Lysistrata in the Peloponnesian War. I don't know, you may be more familiar with that than I am. Well, I remember that at the beginning of the Iraq War, there was a uh, widespread performance of Lysistrata uh-huh. to, uh-huh. Help, to help people remember uh, how, how uh, um, you know, uh, how how women protested war back in those days, and you know those things should be implemented more now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the story is from from if I have this right that in the Peloponnesian War, women wanted their men to stop fighting, so they said no. Um, how should we say intimate relations until you end the war? <laughs> yes. Yes. Definitely it, it, makes sense. It does, and men can often be motivated by such things. Uh huh. <laughs> And, you know, this is uh, a, a, a WILF, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Uh, international is a word in there. And it's interesting, you know, think about internationalism, people of all countries, uh, which, you know, there are these lines in the sand that are drawn that, that separate people uh, unrealistically and arbitrarily. And I think some of the reality is that people... 
our people. And it doesn't matter, you know, which side of the of the border you're necessarily on. You know, internationalism is in direct contract to, contrast to nationalism, which uh, rose up in the late 19th century and led directly to the First World War and, and is, uh, you know, still in effect uh, today in, in the uh, very troubled Middle East. What are, what are some of the war-related problems of the idea of nationalism, per se, that you could talk about, Robin? Yes, well, some of us in Wilf have a a problem with the United Nations. Many, I mean, basically our position is being very supportive, working within the United Nations and everything, but it is a, you know, it is a sort of a, a union of nation states. And uh, so we have on occasion proposed that there needs to be in the United Nations a world parliament uh, where people would be elected directly from uh, from around the world. It's as if the United Nations needs a House of Representatives. It has a Senate. The Senate is the General Assembly where there is a delegation from every country. But this uh, parliament would be the people of the world. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it, it, would, it could be voluntary for a while, and then maybe it would ultimately develop more, uh, moral stature more to be yeah. accepted. But that's something, that's a direction that I think we need to go, because we're feeling here at the Commission on the Status of Women, which is a remarkable gathering of women from around the world. I've, I've uh, attended oh, four or five sessions every year in March, it happens. This year there are more women than ever. They're saying um, 8,000 women. And uh, all trying to, some of them are able to get across and into the United Nations, but that's very limited. Uh, and so most of us are meeting here and sort of listening to each other and hearing reports on, say, Kazakhstan, women in Kazakhstan uh-huh. and, and what what are their struggles. And... Um, it's it's very frustrating because we know that we can't really effectively lobby here. I mean, to think of going up to Susan Rice and saying, hmm. uh, we think you should really, um, uh, y- you know, not vote for continued violence and uh, violent solutions in Libya or and so on and so forth is, is not, there's no traction to it because, we know that everyone here in a part of the delegation to the UN from the U.S. is is their marching orders come from Obama and Washington. Mm-hmm. So, but the value of being here. But let me just say this because I don't want to imply that there isn't a value, though I I am critical of it. Is is that is what is happening here across the street from the UN, which is that women are hearing. Uh, are talking to each other. They're are, they're learning the language of human rights, ah. and they're learning what their country has agreed to officially. And when they go back to their countries, they are able to confront uh, their governments and say, "Okay, you have agreed to this human rights um, protocol. Why you must implement it? And we are going to be watching you." And so that's really the power in my to my mind of this gathering of women here is not so much that we can 
influence the United Nations mm-hmm. right now in their deliberations, uh, but that we will go back to our countries and be able to use these. Even, you know, I'm, I'm from Burlington, Vermont. There should be more women on the uh, police commission. Absolutely. We can, we can, one of our arguments needs to be that, that the United States has committed to gender equality in various protocols, and therefore our arguments should be listened to. Mm. You know, so well, it can be brought down to the local, is what I'm trying to say, from the global to the local. Absolutely. Think globally, act locally. It's really true. And you brought up uh, policing, and you know, clearly most police are men, not all, but right now in these currently United States, there is a great militarization of police everywhere. And it just, I'm concerned about that. I wonder if if Wolf has uh, talked about that and has concerns about the militarization of police, you know, making them in two way a fighting force. And obviously the enemy would be us. Yes, yes. I mean, in Burlington, we have uh, before the city council a resolution uh, showing concern about that. I'm not quite sure what, how it's, uh, how it's phrased, but I do know that Vermont now owns a tank. Oh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, why do we have a tank? Well, if someone's holed up uh, with hostages in a rural area that we need to approach and we need a tank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all this stuff was just uh, left over from the war. And let me just segue to sure. the issue of, um, you know, the arms arms trade and arms business and the and the corporations that are benefiting from oh, they're loving continued it. war because in it. World War One yes um, it's it's now been documented that the um, the arms makers of that time had had the ear of Wilson and uh. made lots of money. I'm thinking mainly of DuPont for example. And one of the things that uh, Wilf did in the 30s when, you know, it takes a while for people to really look back and and absorb what happened in such a traumatic uh, time as World War One. But in the 30s, there were something called the Nye hearings, N-Y-E, oh, yes. um, in, in Congress. And Senator Nye wanted to look at uh, how uh, how corporations benefited from World War One, and and it they, these hearings went on for months. And although it became clear that, for example, Dupont had uh, increased its uh, its income ast- astronomically as a result of the war, very little was done about it. And we then, you know, as the 30s proceeded, increased spending on armaments, and, and then there was World War II. But what we're thinking in Wilf is that we need to have another Nye hearing. We need to oh my look at, at the uh. spending that's going on for, um, for, for these wars that are being fought, and now, uh, now we hear that armed drones are going to be sold to some country or other. And... Good heavens! What are you know? Of course, only to our allies. Mm-hmm. But who who are our allies in the Middle East right yeah, now? And really. could they not just flip? 
oh, you know, it, in a year oh, or so, easily. like poor Jordan, which is so, uh, as, a, as a nation, sort of traumatized by of refugees course. from every country, not to speak of the fact that I think they're, about uh, half the population is Palestinian with, with the concerns that Palestinians have, that these governments are not as stable as we as hmm. one thinks. And to think of arming them more, and especially arming the Middle East, of course, this is where the oh. oil is. So, And it doesn't matter. These guys are making tremendous profits. And you may know this story from the First World War, uh, as, as it was dragging on uh, England, a belligerent against Germany, of course, uh, desperately needed lenses for periscopes, looking up from the trenches and things like that. So there was this big drive in England for people to donate various glasses and lenses. It wasn't anywhere near enough. Well, at the same time, Germany was in desperate need of rubber. Well, England had a lot of rubber. Germany had the Zeiss Icon lenses. So guess what? As the people were killing each other, these companies traded. They got... Uh, British got the German lenses, and the uh, Germans got the British rubber, so they could keep fighting. It was tremendously wow. profitable. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine being one of the people in the trenches, the women at home? Oh my God, outrageous! Absolutely outrageous! Mm-hmm. And you talk, you know, the nature of power and the money that's involved here. People, I think, most citizens are not aware of how profitable war really is. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that, about, you know, the nature of real power. And you, you guys, you know, Wilf has been at it a long time, so you, you have some experience as to the nature of power and the power of money. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, yes. I mean, our slogan this year is women's power to end war, that we that we need to develop and take the power to call an end to war and one of our uh, one of our ways of doing that is to uh, name the names and to shame uh. the shame the uh, war makers and to and that that's why holding another nigh hearing would be one of the ways of doing that to point out that um, that and, and and of course it's all tied with citizens united and the fact that oh, the yes. corporations have more power. Uh, now than they ever did, yes. and that they're more entrenched. Uh, uh, so, but I think people are waking up to all of this, don't you? I mean, there are two wonderful movements happening, sort of apart from what we've been discussing, and that is around Ferguson and yes. and, and 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 police power and militarization of the police, and about the environment. I mean, I took part in this huge uh, demonstration and march that took place um, September here in New York City a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and and these are people who are not going to be uh, buffaloed into, uh, into supporting military spending and who, who are articulate and are going to be on the streets. Right. So I'm hoping that there is a movement that we can all join together. I mean, our analysis in Wilf is that uh, military spending uh, is Makes us is sort of underneath all of this, yes. and that the need for oil and the military is the major user of oil mm-hmm. means that we have had to 
have these relationships with horrible dictatorships like Saudi Arabia. Of course, now we're producing a lot of our own oil, and as Michael Clare has written in The Nation, that may change, that may change things, uh, with, and, and that the price of oil may stay down, and that may uh, give different strengths to different governments. Oh, interesting. Venezuela may have a harder time because it, uh, it won't have the money to put into social welfare issues as they did have. Money and power. It's, it's amazing how many people die for such things. And yes. if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Robin Lloyd of WILF, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, celebrating its 100th uh, anniversary. Some powerful stuff. And we're talking about the, the unique power that women have. And just as not all white middle-aged men are war-making Republicans, of course not all women are peacemakers. I, 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 you know, I wouldn't want Sarah Palin, Michelle Bachman, or even Hillary Clinton making war policy. I mean, I've seen the, the, the political button that says trust women. I wouldn't trust those particular women. <laughs> you, you must have heard such comments before. Are they not feminist enough or feminist at all? How, how do you respond to, you know, women power and you got women like these? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, I, th I think that there are women who have uh, fought their way to power in part by, uh, by supporting and implementing um, a patriarchal view of things. Um, and uh, but what what we are hoping for is that if women uh, obtain like fifty percent uh, representation in in uh, parliaments and uh, congresses, that that will make a significant change. And I think that is true in in Sweden. Um, and in some other countries where women are, I think, between 30 and 50 percent of the, uh, of the parliament, where, uh, where social services are much more paid attention to, uh, education is, is a focus. And the concerns that women have as primary caregivers for children are given more attention. Hmm, what a concept. And, yeah. and, and, and the whole idea of national security. What is national security? If we don't have roads and bridges, if we don't have schools, if people aren't eating healthy food, well, you know, national security isn't just the, the big pile of weapons. That there yes. are. And I think women tend to be more uh, in line with that. Now, you, you must have heard criticism over the years that, oh, you know, you're naive, you know, that, that some wars are necessary. We've got these horrible ISIS people out there in World War II, the, the Nazis. We're not nice people. Uh, you know, aren't some wars necessary? And what about this charge that no doubt you've heard that, that Wilf may be, oh, naive and in thinking international cooperation? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I would, I wish there was a more uh, robust debate of course, this is a historical question again. What if the United States had not entered into World War One? Would have been better. Uh, I mean, Germany. That's... All the countries were almost, you know. Oh, it's almost collapsing. over. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Germany had attacked 
uh, and broken a treaty with Belgium in, at the beginning right. of the war, and, and they seem to have violated more uh, human rights of more people, uh, and the Kaiser was definitely, uh, you know, um, was implementing a strategy of, uh, of, of aggression towards other countries. But if, uh, if, it had, if we had not entered the war and there had to have been some kind of settlement, yes. I think Germany would not have been in a, uh, in a demeaned position, right. which they oh, felt. I mean, Hitler was a, was a soldier in World War I, yes. you need to remember. And, and one of the problems for Germany was that their soldiers fell in France. Their bodies fell in France. They never had the opportunity to get their bodies back and oh, hold wow. a, a true uh, ceremony for them. And Ooh. so Hitler called himself the, the unknown soldier. I mean, he, he didn't die, but he was sort of representing all of the, all of the soldiers that did die uh, and were never adequately honored. So that, that whole thing of resentment... It, it just oh, might have huge. been very different. It's interesting to play, oh, absolutely. play that through. And it is worthwhile to do so, to talk about what could have been. Yeah, what could have been. Um, what about ISIS now? Don't we have to destroy them militarily? Well, you know, I mean, ISIS seems to have risen up out of, out of a, a terrible vacuum of, uh, of our incompetence in... Um, in the ten years of war in Iraq, yes. I- Iraq, and you know, if you have your door kicked in by uh, troops that are either American or supported by the United States, you're sure as heck going to uh, want to get right. back in some way or other. Um, what what just seems uh, very strange. I was talking with an Egyptian woman last night, um, where she is pointing out that. Um, that the United States position on ISIS is not is sort of ambiguous in the sense that um, we were did not support giving air power to the Iraqi army to push ISIS out of Tikrit. This happened just in the last week or so because we said the Iraqi soldiers were being uh, led by a Iranian general. I mean, it's, you know, things it's are insanity. just, I, I don't know, they're far more chaotic and yeah. confusing than I think people are aware of, or that even the U.S. government can get a grip on. <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> I mean, supposedly we have spies everywhere, right? And we're listening to everyone uh, talk, but to to understand what the motives of people are and why, for example, young people are joining ISIS. Oh my God, and what really? the attraction is it's amazing to me uh, is something that I believe our government doesn't know how to counter and it, you know and of course my feeling would be well education and uh, jobs rebuilding jobs uh, yeah. is, is what is needed to to woo them back from that life and try to give them a future and some sort of nonviolent vision of the future. Absolutely, you know, there's no hope. This is what happens, and uh, you know, we don't. It, it's it does seem fairly obvious that the more ISIS is attacked, the more recruits they get, the more they fight. I, it's just 
it, clearly something else has to be done, and I, I, I don't know where the good ideas will come from. Maybe from Wilp. I, I got to ask a couple of things. Young women are kind of quiet these days. They've they've never taken the reproductive rights issue all that seriously. Somehow they just, in general. I mean, there are some who understand that they can be taken away, uh, but what what can be done about connecting? with and invigorating young women to get involved, to realize the power that they have. Mm-hmm. Well, we ponder that a lot because we is primarily a, an aging organization, and some of our branches, I mean, I have to admit it, their, their meetings are held in nursing homes. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, we do have a program that's very exciting. It's called the Practicum here at the Commission on the Status of Women. We... Um, offer uh, to college students to come here and, uh, and spend a week. Okay. Uh, we, we talk to them about Wilf's history, and they attend the UN as well as these parallel events that are happening here across the street. And, uh, and they, you know, they, it, it's helping them be, you know, have a global perspective on the good and the bad things that are happening in the world. So, uh, and they're going back to their colleges and oh, good. And, uh, and talking about it. But yes, I mean, I think uh, one of our problems as as a organization that's been around for a hundred years is knowing how best to communicate with young women uh, through the social media. Right. Now, Wilf does have a. A Facebook page. I just okay. myself, and I'm in my seventies. Learned how to do Twitter. <laughs> um, I just figured it out a couple of weeks ago. Pardon? I just figured it out a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah. So, it, so so that's that's one thing we have to do is is uh, meet the young women where they want to be. Uh, and yes. Attending a lot of meetings is not necessarily uh, the way uh-huh, to go. Right. I mean, some of them are. <laughs> In college, you're holding two jobs, and yeah, I think sounds... they're committed to these issues. And our our desire is to find out how best to reach them and and empower them to speak out. And, and once people feel a sense of power, it's it's kind of addictive. It's it's a good feeling. You could actually make some changes. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot more to talk about, but we basically run out of time. You got a manifesto, which is very very interesting. A lot of oh, really. Oh, good I'm points. so glad you brought that up because. Uh, we've been working on that for like three years, and I read an early version, and then I just read yesterday the the completed version, which will be printed oh, and, wow. and made available at the end of April. Yeah, very incredible. Where did you access it? Is it uh, on the website, right? Yeah, on the website. What yeah. is it? Women Stop War, something like that. William Stop womenstopwar.org, yes. womenstopwar.org. Very, very interesting. And I, I, I encourage people to take a look at that. It makes a lot of sense. It really does. So what what websites can you point out that people should go to if they want to pursue this and, and perhaps be uh, you know, invigorated and take some you know, powerful action? Well, that would be the main one, womenstopwar.org. Uh, also, uh, just wilf.org, W-I-L-P-F. Uh, wilfus.org for what we're doing in the in the United States, and in fact, we have six different issue committees within Wilf on um, uh, 
Citizens United. We oh, call wow. it Corporations versus Democracy. Yes. Armament, of course, is a big one. Food and security. And uh, a few more. Advancing human rights. Yes. That's some great stuff. So, a great um, we would love to have people sign sign up for that and take part in our monthly uh, discussions, conference calls, uh-huh. and and go to The Hague next uh, next April. You can find out where and how and when. Uh, we'll be in the same hall that the women were in 100 years ago. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, and cool. women will be there from especially all the frontiers of conflict and where women's rights are being diminished, yeah. and we'll, we're hoping they will be we will all be um, re-energized yes. to deal with the struggles to come. Oh, let's hope so. Thank you so much. Very, very interesting and, uh, and, and hopeful. Uh, I like that hope and, you know, defending democracy, and uh, that's what we're about, keeping democracy alive. Thank you so much, Robin Lloyd of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Thanks so much for yes, being with well, us. Yes, well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me and right. us. Good. All right. Thanks. Goodbye. This world is love. On and on.